Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you the honor and the praise this morning. May you take your word and may you speak to each of us in the way that we need to hear from you this morning. May, you, may your Holy Spirit have freedom within our lives to change us and conform us to the way that you would have us to live. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have where Jesus, as I've said, has just ended with be perfect as your, heaven in fa- your Father in heaven is perfect. And so the first part of this in Matthew 5, he was dealing with what we've just come from. He's dealing with false righteousness. And he says that the Pharisees had false righteousness because they had set up a system that they could keep. But in God's standard of righteousness, it's so much further than that in a system that none of us can measure up to. But with the Holy Spirit's help, the goal is is to look like and act like and think like and be like our Heavenly Father, who is absolutely and completely perfect. Well, now he kind of, like I said, he goes, he stays with that theme of holiness and righteousness, but now he goes into another issue that they had, and that was false piety. False piety, this is the living and acting out of our righteousness. And so we are supposed to be people of righteousness, keeping the law of God. Are we ever going to do it perfectly? No. But with God's strength and God's help, we are aiming for that goal of of looking like our Heavenly Father. And so as as we come into this passage now, he addresses another issue they had that in their false righteousness, they also were falsely pious. Now, what is piety? It's, it's, it's the acting out of our righteousness. So what we do in public, our worship, our giving, all of these things. And so holiness and righteousness, while it is about what is going on inside of us, true holiness and righteousness will always express itself in outward actions. That's the entire book of James and the message that James writes. If you write, read through the book of James... The entire book of James can be summed up in the fact that you say you have faith by your works. I will show you my faith by what I do. And so James fully explains to us, as no other book in the Bible, that the expectation for the believer is that our holiness and our righteousness that is totally of God and not of us is to be lived out in the world around us. And, and so as we have done that, he now comes and starts dealing with that. Now this is in, this first part is the beginning of a new section. And so verse 1 is really kind of separate from verses 2 through 4, where he deals with the first issue he's going to talk about. So we start with verse 1 here, and it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So he starts off with, and he introduces this new section. And he's going to deal with this fact of false piety, false righteousness, practicing your righteousness for the wrong reasons. Because we can do things with the right action, but have totally the wrong heart behind that action. There's a whole lot of people in this world, we're going to talk about giving this morning. There's a lot of people in this world that are very benevolent givers. And I would tell you that they're doing it for completely the wrong reason. Um, we, you know, when we were in uh, this week, there was a, a um, as uh, I was coming, as we left the resort in Nicaragua, uh, they, there was a place, there, they had, there was a, uh, I think it was a mango farm, or it might have been a banana farm, but it was huge. And it had on the sign, the Ford Family Foundation, the Family Ford Foundation or something like that. It was basically the the Ford family who owns Ford motor cars, or they used to. It was their benevolent gift to try to set up ways for people to make money overseas. And that's great, and that's well and good. I don't think they're doing that to give glory to God. 
I think they're doing that because they probably do honestly want to help people. And they also want a nice tax, bra- tax break. And they want to make sure that they... And, and, but in some ways, we as Christians, though, when we do good things for other people, when we practice our righteousness, we're doing it out of a heart of gratitude and of love for God who gives us everything. And so he says here, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Now, here's the first thing that came into my thoughts, though, as I read this, and, and maybe it did to you, too. Think back to a few weeks ago when we were in Matthew chapter 5. There's another passage in Matthew 5 that this kind of, on the surface, might contradict a little. Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16 says this. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So on the one hand, Jesus has kind of started this Sermon on the Mount by saying, um, by saying let your light shine before men so they can see your good works. Here, he comes along and says, okay, now though I want you to practice your righteousness not to be noticed by men so that your Father in heaven will see them and reward you. Now, what's the difference? On the one hand, he tells us people are supposed to see the good things we do so that they can come worship God with us. And on the other hand, he then turns around in chapter 6 and says, okay, don't do your righteousnesses. Don't do those good things in front of people. And I think the difference is in the heart attitude. You see, I started off with that illustration of the Ford Foundation. And you can find illustrations of that all over the U.S. The United States, for as rich as we are, and we are, we also give millions and billions and billions of dollars from personal funds to tons and tons of different organizations every year. We are a very generous and giving country in many ways. But while we can do the right thing... God isn't just, compared, isn't just concerned with the right thing. He's concerned with the heart attitude behind the right thing. He's just spent the entire last section of chapter 5 finding, you know, explaining that the law is not just about doing the exact right actions, but behind that law and, and having an understanding that, that it's even what happens in our mind and in our hearts that is just as important to keeping the law. And so now he comes to it and he says, correct actions with improper motives still is not pleasing to God. You know, and, and we can think that, okay, well, this is, of course, this applies to the scribes and the Pharisees and their religious leaders. But even today, I was, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking, as I read this, to be perfectly honest, this entire four verses, at first it was like, okay, well, I'm going to be out of town for a week right before having to preach this. And, um... I really don't want to have to focus on it, so let's just do this sermon. It seems pretty straightforward, and start putting thoughts on paper, and uh, yeah, this is good. This is an easy one to do. I got this. And then as I started reading, I'm like, wait a minute. This is pretty convicting. This, this, is, this is speaking to me as a pastor, this is, and, and it's, but I don't think it's just speaking to me as a pastor. It's speaking to me as a Christian, and, and, and why we do what we do but especially as it applies to my life, as I looked at my life as a pastor and as a chaplain, it becomes very easy to start equating outward actions with true righteousness and to do those things in mind with how other people see them instead of how God sees them. And so as I thought back on it, you know, too many, especially as a Navy chaplain, it's very easy to apply it there because as a Navy chaplain, just like any other officer, I get a fitness report. That fitness report is not based on my spiritual condition. And so my commanding officer is never going to write in there, you are a very godly man. You deserve to be promoted because you are so godly. That is never going to show up in a fitness report. Instead, he writes things in there about, well, I watched you do this many ceremonies, and you are the technical expert in doing this, and you are great at public speaking and prayers and all these other wonderful things that can really go to your head. And all of a sudden, you start thinking, well, I've got to do public prayers, and that's what people are judging me on. And so how is this going to go over with this person that's in the audience? And did I say the words right? Did I make it flowery enough? Did I make it flow enough? Um, 
And, and then thinking back to even as a kid, I, I, uh, I like to sing. We don't do like public solos in here, but growing up in church, I like to sing solos and stuff. So I'd sing solos. And, and it's very easy to take something like that that should be worshipful, something that should lead others to worship God. And instead, in the mind of the singer, as you're doing that, it's like, okay, did I hit that note right? How does that person think I sound today? Do, am I going to get enough compliments on this after church? And then as a pastor, well, now that's really easy. How many people are going to come up and say, that is a great sermon, Ben. You did a fantastic job. And, and so you start kind of mentally, if not like at the front of your mind, you start kind of thinking, hmm, did I have as many compliments on that sermon as the other one? Did I, did I make people feel good with that joke? Did they laugh enough? Did, they, did I get the response I was looking for? And so everything becomes about how other people are viewing my ministry Instead of, how does God view this? Am I saying what God wants me to? Am I doing this study and this preparation and putting this, this whether it's a public prayer or anything else, and am I doing it to honor and glorify my God? Or am I doing it because it's a role that I fill and I want people to look at me and say that I did it well? Because one is godly to do it for God's glory. One I'll get a lot of handshakes and a lot of slaps on the back, but the Bible says right here, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And so I think as we begin looking at this passage, he starts off with this kind of change in focus by saying that the only reward we receive from outward shows of piety just for the sake of how we appear and not for the sake of our relationship with God is the respect of men. And that means nothing compared to the eternal reward that is waiting for us when we stand before God. The Expositor's Bible Commentary had this phrase that to trade the goal of pleasing the Father for the trivial and idolatrous goal of pleasing men will never do. And too many times when we go into our acts of worship, what we do to live out our faith, while it may start with every intention of serving God and doing it because we love God and doing it because he's called us to live this Christian life, what it becomes too many times is it becomes how do people perceive me and how much can I do to have other people look at me and think that I'm a good person, think that I'm a Christian, think that I'm a godly person. Unfortunately, in our culture today, we have a culture of self-esteem. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not downing on everything related to all that, but we have a culture that is very much centered on how you feel about yourself and how other people view you. And so we try to do everything we can to build ourselves up. And so and so, if, 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 if we, we want to make sure we hand out a trophy to everybody so that everybody feels the same about themselves, so that everybody, nobody gets their feelings hurt. Nobody thinks they're not perfect, the perfect live up to the perfect standard as that soccer player. Well, I may never I I can't dribble a ball worth anything, but but I got the trophy to say that I was the greatest soccer player just like the number 1 star on the team. And so we have a culture that is very much about self-esteem and not making anybody feel bad and and doing everything to make ourselves feel good. And that culture I believe we bring into the church a lot of times. And so our, even our church services and our act of coming to church that should be the act of spiritual worship to gather with the people of God and grow closer to God can become more about what brand name's on the back of my car. Am I wearing the latest fashion and have the neat little logo on whatever shirt I'm wearing? Is it, is, am I doing this? Um, am I wearing the best clothes? And, I'm, and, and it, how, how about, to bring it down even more personally, how about my family? Do I have the perfect family so that when they come into this church, my son won't run around like a crazy person when we're doing worship and make all sorts of weird noises? Um, and so, you know, are we doing what we can do, what we're doing, not to please God, but to start having people look at us and think we're the good Christians, the perfect Christians, the ones that we can get the honor and respect of men. And so... It's interesting to me, Gunner's brought it up in the last sermon. I saw it a couple of weeks ago when I preached before. But at the end of Matthew, 
it's interesting that Jesus takes these same concepts and continues, he kind of drives them back home again near the end of the book. And in Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 through 11, Jesus brings back this same concept and kind of explains a little further what he's talking about. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 5 through 11, it says, But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And so he was basically bringing back the same concept that he wasn't saying, and here's the thing to grasp with all this, he is not saying quit doing acts of righteousness. In fact, as we're going to see, it's totally expected that you live out your faith and do good things. What he is saying is that if you're doing it to make yourself look good and feel good, if you're the man who does, if you're the person who feels like God has called you to, to study the Bible more, so you go to seminary and you get a PhD and, and you come to church and put PhD and want people to call you doctor and, and, and because you are, you, it makes you feel good about yourself because you put in all that work. And that's why you're doing it? Not because you just simply wanted to know God more? Then you failed in, your, in, your, in, your, in how you live out your Christian life and in how you try to practice your faith. And so what follows is now he's introduced this whole passage. And he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. And what he's going to do is he's going to, over the, next, uh, over, the, over the rest of this passage, he's going to lay out three primary acts that every Jewish person in his audience would have a really good understanding of. Today we're going to look at the first one, and that is almsgiving or giving to the poor. Every Jewish person was... was, was confronted as they walked through the temple with the ability to give money to the poor. They all saw beggars on the street. The Roman government did not have a nice welfare system. So if you were dirt poor or you had a, you had a, a, a physical disability, they were well aware of the fact that God expected them to take care of poor people. It was written into their law. The second thing is he's going to go next week. Gunnar's going to focus on the fact that Prayer was built into the Jewish religious life. There was no part of Jewish worship that did not involve prayer. And most of it, some of it was very scripted. Some of it was, some of, but it was very timed to ceremonies and to occasions when they would pray and ask forgiveness um, on an individual level or on a corporate level. The, set, the third thing that we're going to see after, after that is fasting. And unlike us, you know, we don't think a lot about fasting, but fasting was an expected part of their religious worship. And so for the average Jew, they fully understood, we are practicing our faith by fasting, by giving up food so we can focus more on our relationship with God. And so what Jesus does is he systematically looks through each of these scenarios and says how, on the one hand, I mean this so you live your faith out in this way, but, they had, but, but, but it was being twisted to become more about how it makes me look or what other people think of me in my doing of this rather than simply to worship God. So we're going to start with the first one here, and that is almsgiving or giving to the poor, depending on how it's worded in your Bible. Um, he starts with verse 2, and he says, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, I want to break this apart and kind of see what he's talking about here. The, the first thing is he, he, he talks about giving to the poor, and I want you to point out, we're going to come back to it, but notice it is not if you give to the poor, it's when you give to the poor. In each of these scenarios, Jesus never says, stop doing this stuff. He expects you as a believer to fulfill, to live out his righteousness in the world through praying, through giving, through fasting, maybe. Um, we'll see in a few weeks. But 
um, there, there is an expectation that those religious disciplines will be a part of our life. And so he says, when you give to the poor. But then there's a, a phrase here. He explains, he kind of gives an illustration. He says, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, what does he mean by this? Trumpets, blowing in the street. Um, to be honest, there's not 100% certainty exactly what he means here. There is some certainty what he doesn't mean. Um, John Calvin and many other commentators of his generation hundreds of years ago literally thought, and he wrote in his commentary, that people would march down the streets with, with trumpets and they would like trumpet and say, hey, this rich person is going to give money to the poor now, so everybody come watch. There's zero proof historically that that ever happened in a Jewish context. So um, most, there's not a single commentary that I could find today that would ever say that's actually the way, what he's talking about. What probably it's referring to, although we don't know 100% for sure, but there is a, a good bit of agreement on it, is that in the temple, the almsgiving box, the place where they would place their, their money for the poor, was shaped in the form of a trumpet. Now, in my mind, I have, you know, they, they don't have a picture of this or anything, but in my mind, what I picture is if you've ever been to the mall, they are, uh, I've seen it in several malls. I can't even remember if there's one in Escondido, but usually near the kids' ride section or something like that where people are making change so they can put 25 cents in the kids' ride, they'll have this coin thing that's used to collect money for like a children's hospital or something. And I actually looked it up. It actually has a name. It's like a it's a it's a it's a, 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 a horn wishing wheel, well, and you put the coins on there, and you can race the coins around to see how fast you if you can beat the other guy that's sending his coin down. I don't know if I'm not making any sense, then forget it. But it's a it was cool when I was a kid, and the coins would race around the edge, and it kind of eventually your penny or your nickel or whatever gets down into this little hole and drops into the box. I don't I doubt that was what they had because those are all made out of plastic, but it was something that resembled something like that, and what. And the interesting part is that apparently there is some early references to the fact that that horn or whatever they were using made noise. And so as you dropped your money in there, people could hear whether you gave a lot or a little. Now, I, I don't know, all of us, I was trying to think of, you know, that sounds kind of weird. But then I thought about this. Um, we've all heard stories, and I looked up one just to see. You know, we all love to play, pay property tax, right? Um, okay, no, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but and and most of us, because we're we're normal and we wouldn't think of doing it any other way, we would pay by credit card or check, or we'd pay online, or we'd mail a check, or something like that. Well, I I know I'd heard of it several times, so I looked up a couple of the stories, and there was this guy in uh, I think it was San Luis Obispo, and I'm not sure, and it was on the news. It was back in 2013, and he he got a extra large property tax bill, and it was like. $13,000 or something. He, they said he had been overdue on his taxes, he, and he lost in tax court, so he had to pay it, and he's like, he didn't really want to, so just to be annoying about it, he went to the bank, and instead of taking $13,000 out in cash or writing a check, he took it all out in pennies and nickels and dimes, and he took it up to the tax office there in San Luis Obispo or wherever it was, and he literally just dumped it on. And then the news, cam news crews were there to photograph the whole thing, and um, the people behind the counter did not look too happy with him, but they had no choice, so they had to accept it. But literally, he sat there and just dumped pennies and nickels and dimes all over their desk while they counted it out. So, I, and I've often thought, you know, that'd be a fun way to kind of get even with the tax guy and just pay it. But, but we, that's for a different sermon, and we probably shouldn't do that. But, you know, I can imagine in this scenario that, you know, you have the option. Obviously, they didn't have dollar bills then that make no sound. But you have the option when you're going into the temple to pull out that, you know, maybe today's the equivalent of a $20 gold piece. Um, not that we would ever carry those around with us, but in that day and age, maybe they had like a $20 gold piece or something. You have the ability to take that and drop it in there, and you have one coin kind of going around, and people are like, oh, you're giving to the poor. That's nice. But it doesn't make a lot of noise. Now, if I want to make myself look really good, I'm going to go to the bank or to the tax exchanger or whoever, and I'm going to take that $20 gold piece, and I'm going to get me like $20 worth of pennies, or maybe $10 worth of pennies, because I can still make a lot of noise with that, but spend less of my own money. And then I'm going to go in there and make sure there's a few people looking, and I'm going to pull out my big old bag of change, and make sure that maybe if I put it down enough, they're not going to see their copper pennies. 
and just kind of dump that whole thing down in there. It makes a ton of noise. It sounds like the Coinstar machines, if you've ever used the Coinstar machines, and uh, the change going into there. And that's what, that's probably similar to what was happening. So they would walk in there and to make sure that everyone knew what they were doing, make sure that there was a whole lot of coins being dumped in that almsgiving bucket. And Jesus says, you're not supposed to do that. He's not saying don't put money in it. But if putting money in it is what makes you look good to people and that's what you're going for, You'll look good to people. And guess what? The poor people will still get fed. The poor people will still get money. But you will have lost all your reward for doing that act. And so instead of God looking at it and blessing you for what you have given and what you have done, instead God looks at it and said, well, you got your reward. People looked at you and thought you were a great person. So by all means, take that and go run with it. And so he says, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now I want to come back to that first phrase there, when you give to the poor. Because I, I think for me, this was very convicting. We, it's very easy. Like I said, Rome did not have a social welfare system. It's very easy for me as a believer to look at it and say, well, I pay taxes. I give my money to the poor in the form of taxes that get taken out and I don't ever see those again. But it seems to me that Jesus is, is definitely declaring, and the whole of Scripture points out that everywhere in Scripture that it comes up, it is pointed out as being a part of God's expectation for his children that we be people who give to meet needs in other people's lives. Go back all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15.10, and these are just a few example verses, but Deuteronomy 15.10, at the very beginning of Scripture, as God is explaining his laws to the people of Israel, he says in Deuteronomy 15.10, You shall give generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Right away at the beginning, it is expected that we are people of giving to other people in need. And not only that, it's not a begrudging gift. He says, your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. There's a whole lot of times, I can tell you, I'm not, I'm a little grieved when I give to the government sometimes. I'm a little grieved when I give to, I don't know, someone, something else that requires my, 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 uh, I don't know, compliance. But if I'm giving money to someone, it shouldn't be because I, okay, fine. I should help you. All right, here's a dollar. That, that makes me feel better about myself now. No, we do this out of a heart of generosity because we understand that God will bless us. He goes on in Jeremiah twenty two sixteen. Here's another one. He says, do you become a king because you are competing in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy. Then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me, declares the Lord? He equated knowing God with being on the side of the poor and the needy and looking out for their welfare. Now, does this mean that we, every time a homeless person comes up and asks us for money, that we just immediately pull out everything in our pocket and hand it to them? I, I don't necessarily think that's what that means. Now, sometimes God may lead you to get involved and take some time and talk to someone and find out, wow, there is a real need here that I could meet. Obviously, if you pulled a $100 bill out every time you met someone begging you for money on the street, you would probably be very poor in a short amount of time. But we are expected to meet needs as God brings them to our attention and leads in our life to show us that we have the means to meet those needs. On a corporate level as a church, there's a reason we have a benevolence ministry. And it's not just so we can feel good about ourselves, it's because we are called as believers to gather around, especially those within the body of Christ who need our assistance and be able to meet those physical needs. Does that mean we don't be wise with it? Absolutely not. We, we choose and, and, we, and, we, and we help people based where we can and where we feel led of the Holy Spirit. 
but but it there's a check and a balance but but the goal is to give where we can meet a need and in our personal lives it we need to be open to the leading of the holy spirit to use those physical blessings that god has given us to meet needs within other people's lives for some of us it may be a small amount for some of us it's probably not even financial Maybe there's a way that you see someone who needs a ride to the store because they have a hard time getting out of the house. Maybe you see a need of, of someone who, who, who needs a service provided to them that's going to cost them too much money, but you happen to have that skill. So you say, you know what? I, I don't have a lot of money to pay the plumber, but I've got plumbing skills. I'll come over and fix your, your, your plumbing for you. I think there's a whole lot of different things that he has in mind here. Um, and then he continues this theme in the New Testament. Like I said, Jesus reiterates a lot of these things at the end of Matthew. Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And so he's, he's pointing out as he's nearing the end of his earthly ministry, That while we may not physically be able to, God doesn't need anything anyway. He owns everything. But when we see someone in need, and we can meet that need, and notice not all these things he lists here are, are financial. When I was sick and you visited me, there's not a single exchange of money that takes place. That was somebody giving out of their time and out of their compassion to say, this person needs a visit. This person needs some love. This person needs some prayer. And Jesus says, when you did that to one of the least of these, you did it to me. And so giving should, should characterize us as believers. Not because we want to look good about it. Not because we want everybody to praise us and put our name on a plaque somewhere because we gave $10,000 to the church, so now there's a plaque in the back of a pew for us. Not because there's a building campaign and we want our name to be put in a newsletter, but because we respond to the Holy Spirit's leading in our life that puts needs and people in front of us, and by faith we step out and say, Lord, you've given me a lot. And I can meet this need, and I'm going to give it away because I think it's the right thing to do. Now, like I said, as I was preparing this sermon, I, uh, and I wasn't really going to use this illustration, but then I told Gunnar, and he's like, oh, that'd be a great illustration. So um, I, I was preparing this sermon, and I said it was a little convicting. Okay, it was a lot convicting, because I really was expecting you to sit down, knock it out, you know, go enjoy a week away, <clears throat> relaxing, and not have to think about a sermon the whole week. And so last week, I'm, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I get a lot of stuff in my Facebook feed. And to be honest, I don't always concentrate on preparing when I'm preparing. And so instead of preparing a sermon, I was actually sitting there reading Facebook. And, uh, but I was kind of been mulling over these verses in my mind. Well, all of a sudden, there's, there's a girl on my Facebook feed. She was actually in my youth group um, 20 years ago. And uh, she, um, she's, at the time when I knew her as a teenager, I just... I really thought, yeah, Lord, okay, she's going to end up divorced 20 times, and she's, uh, yeah, she's pretty wild and, and all that. And then, uh, but, but honestly, the, she, the Lord changed her life. She's grown into just an amazingly beautiful young woman, and she's married to a great guy. And, and to be honest, they don't have a ton of money. I, I think they're, he works for, like, Duke Power or something. He's like a blue-collar guy. They don't make a ton of money. But God, I, and I believe it's a gift, has, has just... She has the ability to see a need in a person's life and know that that need is real and then collectively put together a team of people who either financially or, or just helping them can meet those needs. And, and she really is very good about it, and she uses Facebook to do that. So, and, and so all of a sudden, I'm, I'm just like, okay, I'm thinking about this verse. Okay, we're supposed to give to the poor. Yeah, that sounds well and good. Of course we're supposed to give to the poor. I gave a dollar the other day to that homeless guy. 
I'm good. And then uh, all of a sudden I see in my news feed, her next door neighbor has had his trailer burned to the ground. And I'm like, well, that's bad. And then she says, oh, and I'm, I found another trailer for him. But it's $1,500, and quite honestly, she said, my husband and I just don't have the money to go out and spend $1,500 to buy him a replacement trailer. And in South Carolina, once the trailer's too old, there was no insurance to cover it. It's just gone. So she found it. She went out of her way, did the research, found a trailer, and just needed people to give money to go buy a trailer for her neighbor, who wasn't even a believer from what I understand, and just to gift him this trailer so he could have some place to live instead of living in a tent on his property. And um, as I'm reading this and I'm thinking about this, it says, for some reason, it just, and normally I would just scroll right through something like that. Um, not, not all the time, but yeah, I feel bad saying that. But a lot of times I would just scroll right through that. But for some reason, God just kept laying it on my heart and being like, you're going to preach on giving to the poor. And you have extra money in your bank account. You could give a few dollars to this thing. And if enough people give it, then it's not going to be a lot off of anybody's back. And I just kept coming back to it. And finally, I was like, I know you're not supposed to argue with God, but I did a little bit. And I was like, okay, Lord, I, we're going to Nicaragua. I don't have, I need money. I need to be able to like buy food at the airport. I need to be able to do some other stuff. I, I just, I can't. Okay, Lord, what do you want? Oh, you know what? I've got, and I was thinking about it and thinking about some more. And I was like, okay, well, I've got a couple of, I've been, I have an investment account and I've been, I was like, I, I think this one stock's about ready to grow. If it grows, I've got 72 hours before I have to get on the plane. I will give the money to this thing because you will have brought it in. And it's like literally, and I don't feel this way often. I'm not trying to be charismatic, but I literally felt like God slapped me across the face and said, yeah, that's not the way this whole giving thing works. And, and so I was like, okay, Lord, fine. I'll give some money. And I gave the money. And and. And I'm not saying that to make myself look good. Believe me, there would have been a whole lot of other cases I've seen where I did not give the money. But I feel like that's the way it works a lot of times, is that God brings needs into our life. And it's really easy for us to just scroll by those needs, just like on Facebook. It's really easy to walk by that person and be like, okay, brother, sister, I'll be praying for you. Whew, good, I'm done. But God brought them into our life, not so we could just say, I'm praying for you, but so we could physically meet that need. God has been so good to us. We live in the richest country on earth. We have more stuff than we could ever imagine or use or need. And yet too many times we're also, while on the one hand, corporately, yes, as Americans, we give billions of dollars. We're also, as individuals, a little chintzy sometimes. And so God places situations within our lives, and as believers, we are called to give and meet those needs where we are able. And so he continues on with his illustration of how we're supposed to give to meet those needs. He says in verse 3, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, if you were to literally do this, you'd have to cut your brain in half and get a lobotomy. And I don't know any one of us that thinks that that's a good thing to do. Um, Because that's the only way you could be eating with one hand and your other hand could be over here working on a cell phone and they would not even know what the other one's doing. That would be just weird. So obviously Jesus is not saying cut your brain in half so that your two hands can do something different. What he's saying here is he's using hyperbole to point out the fact that we are to give with an attitude of secrecy. He's not saying stop giving. He's saying give, but do it in such a way that as much as possible, you minimize, really, what kind, what the gift was. That you minimize, uh, and, and I think it carries two reasons behind that. The first reason is for the person that's receiving the gift, the benefit, the money, the, the help, the assistance, whatever it is. If you say, oh, I had to help this person because they're poor and needy, then you're kind of lifting, the, you know, that, that brings them down and makes them feel worse about it and everything else. But on the other hand, then you're also doing it to make yourself look good. Well, look what I did. 
I gave a million dollars to the church, and they put my name on a building. I feel good about myself. But that's the wrong reason to do it. And so we're supposed to have an attitude of secrecy that can, obviously, you can't do it all the time perfectly. In verse 4, he says, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, can you, you can't always do this. My, my friend uh, in South Carolina, Amy, so in order to make a lot of this stuff happen, she obviously, she puts stuff out on Facebook. She doesn't usually give any names, but she says, hey, here's a need. I just need five people to assist with this. I need, and people do that all the time. Now, is that wrong? Is that what they're saying? Don't ever tell anyone what you're doing. No. Even in our church, before we financially meet someone's need, there's a group of people who gets a call and said, hey, you know, this is the need. We think it's legitimate. We've, we've, we've talked to them, and we just want to make sure there's consensus here in how it's done. And you can ask Gunnar. That, it, every time I've been here, and I've only seen it done a few times, but, but it's always been legitimate. And there's always been more than one person making that decision. Does that mean we shouldn't do that? No, it doesn't. We have to be responsible with what God has given us. But it does mean that our attitude behind it is one of trying to help that person through that spot without kind of raising them up to be a, 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 you know, a, a showcase. And also not to put us in the position of it being about me instead of about giving glory to God. Because ultimately, everything about practicing our faith is not supposed to be so that I get the glory. It's supposed to be so that God gets the glory. And if you look back to Matthew chapter 5, it's so that God gets the glory and so that He can then be glorified by other people as well. And so if we push the glory back to Him instead of to us, hopefully in doing that, People grow closer to Christ. Maybe that person that we're trying to help, that person that we're giving some financial assistance to, who's never really considered the gospel before, because a Christian steps up and says, you know what, it's not about me. I've been blessed by God. Here's the money you need. Let me help you through this patch. Let me take you to this organization that I know can help. Let me do this for you. Because they see Christ being lived out in your life, they give the gospel a second thought. They give the gospel another hearing. They show up at your church. They show up and they listen to the gospel and they accept Jesus Christ and their life is changed, not just for here and now, but for all of eternity. Or maybe it's a Christian who's really been struggling with something in their life, but because we were able to meet that need in their life, their relationship with Christ is strengthened, their faith is increased, and the whole church benefits from a believer who's on fire for Jesus Christ. So that's why he says, so your giving will be in secret. And then notice what he ends with, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, this is speaking, you know, the Bible talks about when we're in heaven, there's going to be rewards given. Ultimately, the greatest reward ever if we follow, is what we want to hear as believers is to hear God look at us and say, well done, you good and faithful servant. But the Bible talks about crowns. He talks about other rewards of, of, of letting God reward what is done here on earth. And while I think that is definitely what is in mind here, what I wouldn't want to do is take out the practical blessing that you see from following God and obeying Him and giving here on earth. Now, let me just preface this to say, what he is not saying is, like you would hear on certain television shows, send me $100 and God's going to send you $1,000 tomorrow and you'll be driving around in a big Cadillac because God wants you to be a millionaire. That is not at all the gospel. The gospel is not give and God will make you a millionaire. The gospel is give and God will take care of you and God will bless you and ultimately God will reward you greater than you can ever imagine when you're walking on sidewalks made out of gold instead of being paved with blacktop. But the gospel is not, I'm going to give this so God can give to me. But what I would tell you is the gospel is this, that you cannot outgive God. I wish I could tell you that I had always followed this principle. That would be absolutely a lie. But I can tell you that when I listened, 
when I have listened to God, when I've listened to the Holy Spirit move in my life, when I've seen those needs, and when I've actually gone out of my way to meet them, or to just give the time and the effort to assisting the person, that it's come back in ways that I can't even begin to imagine. And I'm probably taking away my reward to even bring this up. But So the other night, I told you about that, and, and that would have been well and good on its own, and I would have... I, I, you know, I would have been just happy giving the money, but um, literally the next day, I, you know, I gave the money, and it wasn't a huge deal, but the next day, I opened my account, or I look at my investment things, and it had grown, like, more than the amount that I gave, and I was just like, okay, God, this is exactly what I said I would give if you had let this happen, but I gave it anyway, and, and it came back. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen every time. It's not. It just won't. But you can never outgive God. And if God is placing it in your heart to help someone, financially, with your time, with your, with your, with your hands, with your talents, whatever it is, God will bring that back in blessing to you. Whether it's simply a trust in him that says, God, I gave this money, and, and like it has been for me and Beth on numerous occasions, I give the money when that is a hard tie check to write to the church. Not, not now, I'm not saying that, but I, there have been plenty of times in my life where writing a tithe check to the church meant that I better write it right away because if I wait a day, I'm going to start paying bills and be like, oh, this money is not sitting there. I don't have it. But it's at that point when you step out on faith and all of a sudden you get to the end of the month and you're like, wow, I paid all my bills. I can't even tell you how I paid all my bills. Maybe if I did a better bookkeeping job, that would solve that. But, I mean, seriously, it's amazing to me when I look back over my life, the times when I, we were faithful to God to give. Those were the times where we saw God's blessing in ways that I can't even imagine. I've had jobs, I've had side jobs come in that I never even knew were there and, and it's been right after I gave money that I didn't think I had because I know I should do it. And somebody's calling me saying, hey, I need help on this job for a day. There's the money back. God owns everything anyway. We don't just go out and give so we can feel good about ourselves like Bill Gates. We give because we serve a God that when we look around at everything he's given us, our houses, our cars, our families, our, our land, our money that sits in the bank, our investments, our retirement fund, every single one of those, and the mountains and the hills and the sun and the stars, he owns it all. And he made it all. And that little bit of money that I'm holding on to and grasping at because it's so important to me, God says, I've got billions. That's just paper. And we think it's so important to our life that we can't give away a little bit of it that God has so greatly blessed us with. So, how do we do this? How do we move from being in a place where it's all about how I look and how it makes me look to give money to people that God brings in my path or doing it so that we can look good about ourselves and have our name up on a wall? I mean, fortunately, we don't do this at our church. Thank goodness we don't. But, um, you know, I've been at plenty of churches where there's plenty of plaques on the walls of people who've donated large amounts of money and people who gave this and the backs of the pew will say this. And I'm not saying there's anything technically wrong with that. Okay, don't go out of here and say that I said that. But I will say <laughs> that reward is really tiny. And the answer to not doing it just to have our name written somewhere, just to have people pat us on the back and feel good about ourselves because other people are building up our self-esteem, the answer to false righteousness is true reverence. Why do I say this? Because if we're looking for how we can truly worship God with our lives by living before Him in a right way so that when we do things like give to others, we do it in the right heart attitude. It takes seeing God for who he is. When we truly begin to put our focus back on God and on his majesty, it drives us to humility. And humility is the true heart attitude with which we live out our faith. In this case, by giving to those less fortunate. This is pictured in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. 
in this chapter, Isaiah is receiving, I, I believe, his like formal call to ministry. And he's in the temple, and it says in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high, lifted up and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How do you guard your heart to keep from just doing good things just to be seen by people? You see God. And you get a picture for who God is. That your righteousness and the good things that you do are worthless by His standards. And even the good things that we're doing down here are nothing compared to the good that he's done for us. That he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin, that while we were still sinners, as Romans tells us, God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when we focus on that, and when we keep our focus on him, it becomes very easy to live out our life even in giving Not with an attitude to have people look at us and say, wow, look what great things you did. But with an attitude that says, God, you've been so good to me that the least I can do is help those that you bring into my path. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that um, you've given us your righteousness. That, Father, you you don't expect us to be perfect um, in our own strength but that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that you have called us to live out our faith in this world. And that one of the ways we live out that faith is by giving to those less fortunate. Father, may we be open to the leading of your Spirit. May we have our eyes open and our ears to the ground to hear and to see the people that you bring into our lives that we can help. Father, may we do this not to receive good praise here on earth, but ultimately to hear you say, well done, you good and faithful servant. We give you the honor and the praise and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.